0: Hello everyone and welcome to the in of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefatibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Speaking of the show, do you want it to continue? Consider supporting it today if that's the case. There's a lot of great ways to do that, and one of the best is to pick up some of our customizable merch over at TeeSpring. But that's enough. In keeping with last week's conversation about aquatic plants and fish, I thought why not revisit a conversation I had with Marvin Lowe back in 2019? Marvin is an aquascaper extraordinaire, and like many of us, he finds ways to incorporate his love of botany into his hobbies. And aquascaping is such a cool way of doing that. It's essentially gardening, but in an aquarium where fish can swim around and enjoy the landscape that you've created. I don't want to steal any of this thunder. This was a really fun conversation, and hopefully many of you will either have already shared your love of aquascaping or get bitten by the bug yourself. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Marvin Lowe. I hope you enjoy. all right Marvin Lowe, welcome to the podcast how about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do
1: hi uh, my name is Marvin and it's nice to meet everyone um, so what I do is I'm an aquascaper and most people you know they ask me like what what is aquascaping what do you do exactly like I've never heard that term um, I like to refer to it as landscaping in an aquarium so uh, I've starting to become a professional aquascaper at this point so I'm really competitive on, uh, and there's a lot of Kind of competitive aspects to this art, I would call it. So, you know, I started out mainly growing just aquariums, like just keeping aquariums with fish in them. And then at some point, I discovered that there was actually plants that would grow underwater. Hmm. And because of that, I started looking more and more into this aquatic plant hobby. Most people think plants you keep outside in a pond, you know, and you can't really do them inside. But there was a small group of people who were keeping plants in aquariums indoors, and a lot of them happened to originate over in Asia. So a lot of Asian people tended to do that more than, say, the Europeans or the Americans. So in 2007, I think, is when I saw my first aquascaped aquarium, and I just like fell in love with it because it was just. So different than anything I'd ever seen at any pet store in the US. So after that, I got bit by the aquarium plant bug, and I was just searching the internet for all sorts of stuff where I could find out more information about growing aquarium
0: plants underwater.
1: And that's kind of where how it all started.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. And I'm so excited that you're on here. Finally, we get to talk about this because some people listening might know that really aquarium plants were my first introduction to anything resembling trying to grow plants. It wasn't very successful, and I certainly didn't get bit by the botany bug then, but when you say aquascaping, I get really excited because that is such a big part of what kind of made me into the, the nature nut that I am today. And, and I really understand why you get really into it, and, and there's a lot we can talk about from species to, to design and stuff like that, but I'm it, it would be interesting to know how your first attempts at growing aquarium plants really panned out? Because, you know, like you said, people think about ponds and, and aquatic plants as being kind of these things stuck in the mud outside. Growing them in an aquarium is is an entirely different process, but it's almost more rewarding just because of the vantage point you get.
1: Oh, yeah. So my first attempts were extremely poor. There wasn't a wealth of information. Um, it's a fairly new hobby. It probably started about like uh, in the ni- 1980s, 1970s. There mm. was definitely a uh, an aquarium plant aspect to it but it was treated in a manner that wasn't so technologically advanced so a lot of what i read was basically what we f- refer to as like a uh, low tech or like low energy tanks where we all know that plants need co2 to survive and it's kind of uh you know it's not intuitive to to assume that there's a lot of co2 in the water so most of all these low-tech tanks relied on these like yeast generators um, hmm. where people would put yeast and sugar water together and then, you know, the bubbles would come out and you would kind of plumb it into the aquarium and try and distribute it into the water and get it to dissolve. So um, that's kind of how I started out. I remember having this like little bubble ladder. So a, ye- uh, a CO2 bubble would exit this tubing in the tank and then it would kind of like travel up the ladder slowly and like kind of slowly dissolve into the water. Hmm. And it was just extremely difficult to get plants to grow because of that fact and the lighting that existed uh in the industry was was not geared towards growing plants so it was mostly like fluorescent lighting or incandescent lighting and that wasn't nearly strong enough for a lot of these plants that grow nature in full full sunlight sometimes so uh, it was a difficult start i would say but i persevered and i kind of like kept trying to grow plants and eventually the needs were kind of being met by the technology so Um, At some point, it transitioned over to higher tech tanks, what we call higher energy tanks.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting point to be made is just, again, how recent some of the successes and and really kind of the whole hobby being where it is today. It's it's relatively recent and new, and a lot of that is that tech limitation. So in thinking about trying to grow an aquatic plant, it's definitely not as easy as going to your local garden center, grabbing a pot, grabbing some soil and throwing it in there and putting it on a windowsill you know, what kind of considerations do you have to deal with when it comes to aquatic plants that you wouldn't have to deal with with, say, normal house plants? So
1: dealing with aquatic plants is slightly more difficult because they're kind of always in, the biggest issue is they're always in the environment in which they have access to nutrients. And there's a lot of competition from other things in the aquarium such as algaes or bacteria and all these other organisms are also competing with your plants. Hmm. But we want our plants to grow as well as possible. The problem is a lot of these uh, algaes they tend to thrive better in situations in where like a nutrient is limited or um, there might be too much light or not enough CO2. So the algaes, most beginners, I feel they always have an issue with some kind of nutrient limitation or too much light or too, too much co2 so there are always it's a balance issue in an aquarium and that's extremely important to keep in mind when you're working in the aquarium so understanding how these nutrients and this light and the co2 is all balanced out is one very important aspect that i think people tend not to understand as much when they first start out and then they slowly as they gain experience they kind of realize how to do that and handle it <laughs> as time goes on
0: yeah, and, and one of the things that I really appreciated early on was was kind of always being this biology nerd in, in some form or another. I, I always liked studying life, no matter what, and the quick thing I realized was that you almost had to go through a crash course in, in basic biology, or at least basic botany, to, to really understand what you were needing to go to the store for for your aquatic plants. It, it really did kind of help you understand, even though aquatic plants are kinda of strange in the context of all plant life in terms of how they make a living. You 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 paid more attention to nutrients, limiting nutrients, what kind of wavelengths are important, uh, CO two, which is, you know, again, we keep talking about it and it's something that's freely available in the air, but is is a totally different challenge for something living underwater.
1: Yeah, it's extremely difficult. Especially when you're um you've got a lot of surface flow and a lot of bubbling action going on. All that CO two tends to just dissolve and exit the water and leave it. So, you know, if you get into the higher end tanks, you do have to pay more attention to those things. But it really is learning the balance between like how the nitrogen cycle works, you know, getting those bacteria started and breaking down the ammonia that turn into nitrate into nitrite, you know, which the plants can use more readily. So it's a lot of understanding basic biology principles, but also at the same time it's also watching the plants and, and seeing if they're nutrient deficient. You know, are they do they have pinholes on their leaves? Are they like shedding leaves at the bottom? So it's kind of a, a there's a lot to watch, but it's also kind of uh, it's very rewarding just watching plants grow, you know, from one day to the next, you can actually see growth in your plants,
0: yeah. and and the thing that always excited me most is when I really started to hit my stride in in my attempts was actually watching oxygen bubbles exiting the leaves. you're You're literally watching photosynthesis, you know, the end product of it, at least, like a conveyor belt coming out of the leaves and and returning to the atmosphere eventually. And that, to me is the most exciting thing about growing any plants, but especially when you can sit and watch something like you said so rapidly take place, it really changes sort of the perspective you have on the timescale of how plants operate.
1: Yeah, we call that in in the aquascaping community is called pearling Hmm. because they look like little pearls of oxygen. They're pearls of uh, gas basically sitting on the leaves. And if you can achieve that in your tank, you know that your plants are doing well. And most people, whenever they see that the first time, they're always like in awe of it because it's just something that you wouldn't even think about seeing in an aquarium underwater. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And the the amount of plant varieties out there is just, it's astounding how much, how many plants can actually grow underwater. It's, It's a lot of fun just seeing all that action happening all at the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, the variety, even beyond what you would go and see at a normal pet store, when you really start to get into it, I've picked up magazines recently that are more dedicated to the hobby than I have been in recent years, but it's amazing just in the last, you know, decade, what's become available and the amount of different plant species that people can experiment with and grow. And, and that's a really interesting point in and of itself is just, if you really like a variety of plant species, wow, this is a whole new world available to you and in, in, in what you can do in a relatively small space with a relatively decent sized aquarium. Um, but from a beginner's standpoint, for those listening that haven't gotten into it fully, you know what are what were some of the early plants you experimented with? some of the early successes that might be doable on, say, a limited budget versus someone that's a little more uh, technologically into it?
1: So for someone starting out, I would say, um, you're not gonna have a lot of money to put into lights. Or towards a CO2 system. You can definitely keep a tank without CO2 and low lights. Um, I'd stick with more of the low light plants, which would be things like Anubias or cryptocoryne. Those are both aeroids. And then there's some grasses that will do pretty well, some ground cover plants. It really depends. And there's a bunch of resources out there on the internet now that distribute plant. There's plant retailers now that exclusively sell aquarium plants so you can always check out their websites and see if they rate them as like high medium or low light or like high tech requires co2 or is a very finicky plant I'm trying to think of some other easier plants rotalas are fairly easy for the most part some akindor species do fairly well in lower lights too and some mosses, actually. Mosses are some of the easiest to grow without hmm. any light and nutrients. And you wouldn't even imagine that there were aquatic mosses out there. But the variety that exists is, is almost limitless. And there's a lot more to find out there. There's constantly new plants being discovered that will grow in the aquarium. So,
0: Yeah, and that's a really interesting point to bring up is just, again, the variety of types of plants that are available. When I first got into it, it was the Elodias and then you know the occasional lilies or Potomagetan. Uh, a big chunk of it was aeroids, but now you know, like you mentioned, you can kind of hit the gamut from the non-vascular liverworts, like you have Rikia and Ricciocarpus, all the way up to something um, like uh, a lace sword plant from the Amazon. It's just such a bewildering variety of shapes, textures, colors that are that are now coming into being, you know, relatively easily available for most people.
1: Yeah, there's actually one really cool plant called I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's spelled like suswassertang. And I believe it's a the sporophyte form of a fern. Really? So it it never yeah, it never goes into the gametophyte
0: stage, I believe. It's a really cool plant. Wow. Yeah. There's definitely some interesting discoveries, I would say. And again, the layers of interest here, it's really cool because you could just be purely aesthetic with this. You just love the 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 shape, the textures and the, and the overall look of a completed aquascape or you can be a total plant nerd like we are and just dive really into it and get super excited about that sort of thing. So I guess as the hobby evolved for you, you know what really started to change about A, your approach, and B, the kinds of species that you were, were taking stabs at? And then we can kind of go from there into sort of the competitive elements of this.
1: Yeah, so I originally started out just growing plants. And then once I started getting more equipment like CO2 and higher lighting, I kind of went into this phase of what we call collectoritis. <laughs> um, a lot of people go through it. It's just trying to get any available plant out there, especially rare ones, because for some reason, people always love rare plants. Uh, if it's uncommon or hard to get or hard to grow, people will try to do it. And I went through a big phase of collectoritis. <laughs> um, a, lot of, a lot of these plants can be very demanding. They are soft water only, like the colons from Australia and the Tonina species from South America, there's those are purely soft water so you need an RO system so I got one of those just to grow them hmm. and then you know after a while the collectoritis got kind of out of control there's not enough tanks to hold all the different plants that I wanted to grow <laughs> and at some point I was just like I can't I can't keep doing this and one of my friends I'm in a club called the Chicago Aquatic Plant Society I'm an executive board member on that and one of the other board members on there kind of got me to do an aquascaping competition with him three years ago. And I had always seen works from this guy in Japan. His name is Takashi Amano. Yes. He's kind of Yes. He's very well known if you're in the aquascaping community. He's the, the godfather of what we call nature aquarium. So I saw some works by Takashi Amano. And they were always in the back of my head, like his aquascapes. Uh, I just didn't think I was good enough to do it. So at one point, I just decided to enter competition and try out aquascaping, which is kind of more of the landscaping side of aquascaping. It's it's more of um, placing plants in specific locations, you know, hardscape. Everything becomes one whole piece. And it all flows together, I guess I would say. Takashi Mano, his tanks are amazing. He started out, oh, I believe it was in the 70s, and he was growing aquarium plants with seltzer water because there was CO2 in the seltzer water, and he would huh. put it into to kind of give a CO2 boost to his plants, and it was back when he was doing these tanks, there was almost nothing available, and he would just go out collecting plants. So it was really interesting. He's got a biography out there that's it's it's a good read. Oh, cool. He's also a photographer by trade, so he has a lot of photography books, and he started taking pictures of his aquariums, and he, called, he has this Nature Aquarium series, uh, which is pretty well known. It's kind of the beginnings of Nature Aquarium style as we know it, so. I just tried to do what he does, um, not good by any means. It was a really bad aquarium, but (laughs) I mean, it was, it was just me starting out. So I was like, I'm going to give it a shot, you know, maybe it'll turn out well, maybe it won't. And then, you know, I think I kind of have an eye for this stuff, but it's not perfect, but there's enough people out there where I could get feedback and then start developing my own style. So that's kind of how it started for me with aquascaping. And then at that point I was like, I can't deal with this collectoritis anymore, so I kind of dropped that and now I'm more into the aquascaping side of it.
0: That's really interesting and it's kind of cool to see that transition between you know that pendulum swing of oh my god this is amazing I have to do all of it to kind of like oh I found my niche and now I just I've, I've found what I want to do and what really brings me enjoyment and, and one of the things that you keep mentioning is this idea of a nature aquarium and for me that was the big push into this world of finding out more about aquascaping. I'm not competitive myself but It was kind of at the same time I was realizing that, you know, animals and and all the things I liked in nature came from somewhere. They had a habitat, and, and the more you could mimic a more naturalistic habitat, the happier the fish seemed to be, the shrimp, whatever you were trying to keep, seemed to be, and that really kind of comes down at the core of the idea of a nature aquarium is, is in one form or another mimicking wild settings or, or processes more than, say, you know, the, the little treasure chest or the scuba diver and the puke-colored gravel and all the stuff that, you know, you think of as the cliche aquarium setup, right?
1: Yeah. Amano's theory, when you look at one of his tanks, you don't think of it as aquarium. What I like to think of is it's almost kind of a representation of nature. Uh, more abstract. It could be abstract. It could be very specific. Some people like to copy nature directly or try and mimic it directly, but it's more of a whole piece rather than just growing some plants and having a tank full of plants. There's just something about it that kind of pulls you away from the plants and the fish and the rocks. And it, I don't know, it kind of makes it one whole cohesive piece of work. And it wouldn't be complete without any of those pieces in it. So we always have fish, we always have plants, we always have wood or rocks in the tanks, and they just kind of all fit together. And it seems like that's a popular thing to do. Like it's almost like painting. And that's what I really enjoy about it. It's it's kind of like the artistic side of it.
0: Yeah, which is really exciting because oftentimes you think of sort of the scientific nature aspect of things as being nature and then there's art. And often you know they do combine in, in amazing ways. But to be able to use nature as art in this way is is phenomenal, and and to me, there are a few things more relaxing than sitting back in front of a large aquascaped aquarium and just sitting there and watching it. And it's just you get lost and you go, oh, that was five hours of my day, and I feel good, like I'm not stressed, I'm not freaking out about anything. That to me is is amazing. But like you said, it's like a paint, it's like painting for you, and it, it becomes this artistic element as well of being able to visualize something and and bringing all these pieces into making a holistic uh, expression of whatever it is batting around in your head at that point in time. So from the artistic side of it to more of the competitive side of it, like what is going on at an aquascape design competition? I mean, how is it play out? What are you given? Do you have to bring your own stuff? How is it judged? Like what's this whole process like? Okay.
1: So there's two different types of aquascaping
0: competitions.
1: One is more of a uh, live aquascaping competition where you can bring materials bring plants and they supply a tank. Sometimes they also supply the plants and the materials. And then there's also the photo competitions, where you tend to have your tank at home, and then you set it up. And when your tank is ready, when that final moment comes, you take a picture and submit that. So for the live tanks, the standard procedure is either you have the hardscape material, which is like the wood and the rocks and the sand and all that. You have that supplied, and sometimes the plants too. Or you bring your own, and you have to set up the tank at the location. And the, um, all the contestants do it uh, at the same time. They're allowed the same time to do it. And then they're all judged kind of when the time limit comes. Mm. So um, after the time list reached, you can't escape anymore. And then the judges come around, they look at everyone's tank, and they grade them. And then they basically place you, they rank you. Whereas the photos, they tend to be online. They're much more approachable because you can submit your tank from anywhere in the world. A lot of these are international. The U.S. has one called uh, the Aquatic Gardeners Association Contest. They're the ones that run the U.S. one. Um, Hmm. Japan has one, which is IAPLC, International Aquatic Plant Layout Contest. And then China also has one, um, Taiwan. So there's a bunch of these popping up now. Hmm. So there's more and more nowadays. There used to only be two. AGA was a big one, and IAPLC was the other one. And there's actually quite a large cash prize. I mean, I think if you win first place for IAPLC, it's
0: around $10,000 US. Oh, so, wow.
1: Dang. Yeah. Yeah. So, there is money involved in some of these contests.
0: Yeah, I can see where the hint of saying kind of doing it professionally can kind of come into play there if you hit a few circuits and do pretty well. That's And and as you're describing this to me, a live aquascaping competition, there needs to be like a Netflix show there somewhere, like a nailed it version. I'm sick of the cooking shows. Let's do like aquarium design or landscaping <laughs> stuff like that. That's really exciting. That would
1: be so much fun if we could do something like that. Uh, there's a lot of people now that social media is so accessible, I guess a lot of people just live stream when they're at these competitions and they, everybody in the community kind of knows everyone else. It's not a very large community and everyone's pretty close. So we all know all these other people that scape, and like in the US, there's a very a relatively small group of people that do this so I yeah. think there's less than 50 Wow um, but in Asia it's definitely a, a much more popular hobby I right. would say right or in Europe
0: yeah growing plants in general um, gardening I think is is more big in Europe and Asia uh, than it is in the US culturally whatever but um, you know in, in thinking about this from either a landscape perspective an artistic perspective but just everyone kind of has their own philosophy whether you're growing plants or painting or landscaping Uh, I'm curious what you bring to the table when you're setting up some sort of design. Is there a certain aesthetic you're aiming for? Is it, are are you more like whatever's inspiring me at that moment? Do you have species you always want to include or are you just kind of more experimental? How, how do you approach this? Um,
1: Since I'm fairly new to this, I tend to be slightly more experimental. I definitely work better with stone. Um, Some people do really well with wood. I can't work with wood for the life of me. I need practice. What I'll tend to do is, I'll literally just sit in front of an empty tank and just like start moving stones around. I don't. Some people tend to um, get inspiration directly from nature. They'll they'll say, look at you know a landmark, maybe something like the Grand Canyon or some national parks like Yellowstone or something. They might look at some photos and try and directly replicate that. Others are more much more abstract. Uh, they kind of go by feel and they just kind of look at the stones or look at the wood and just. There are certain artistic concepts that come into play when you're doing competitive aquascaping, you know, rule of thirds or or things like that. But you know, I won't get too much into that. (laughs) Um, and perspective plays a huge role in in aquascaping, but I'm more of a by my like gut feeling. Like what do I kind of what kind of feeling do I want to replicate in this tank? Um, so how do I put the stones to express that feeling is, is normally how I do it. Nice. But I definitely know other people. Who do it the other way who say i want to make this in my tank and and then you know they'll make the grand canyon in their tank
0: yeah i mean it's just like bob ross always says there's there's more than one way to do this this is just the Mm -hmm. way it works for you right but that's what's so cool is again it it becomes this hobby that is both um challenging and relaxing you know and and anytime you can kind of stimulate your mind but also sit back and go like ah that feels good that's that's super healthy for you and, and I'm curious, you know, you've obviously been at this for a bit now. Uh, you've evolved and you're going to continue to evolve with it. But what, what kind of plants have always stuck with you and what things are you kind of having success with now that maybe you weren't before? I mean, are there certain groups that really stand out or individual species that really just tickle you?
1: So since I'm very aquascaping focused right now, there are... <laughs> I would say a smaller set of plants that I tend to stick with and mostly the smaller fine leaf species are what I go with just to create better perspective in my tanks but I do really love aeroids Cryptocrini are some of my favorites same with anubius um and one of the more recent discoveries I think is the bucephalandra yeah or bucephalandra I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce them um yeah. There are relatively new aquatic species to the hobby, and I think discovery in general. There weren't too many species that existed before, but now they're starting to be named. And the problem with those guys is they're from Borneo, and um, a lot of their habitat is being destroyed, and they're also being over right now at this point. So. Yeah. There's a fine line between wild-collected blue of Landra and getting like farmed ones. They're a really interesting species, though, because their leaves are underwater. There's like blue pigmentation in them. They're purple, red. They have like the rainbow of colors, and it's, they're just stunning under the, under the water. So they're one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, I keep getting hints of them. You know, they'll come up on blogs or or pictures will be posted to Twitter or something like that. And, And they are gorgeous, but I have yet to actually see one in person. But it is kind of this tragedy where so much of what's being discovered and coming in new across the board, not just aquatic plants, is the fact that we're getting into areas where humans haven't been able to get to or very few humans have been able to get to before. And sometimes when you're seeing new stuff come in, it's a symptom of this destruction that you mentioned. And there is a fine line between wanting that new thing and having ex-situ conservation, whether that's in a botanical garden or among hobbyists, and then over-collection. And that is always kind of like, there's such a tension there that, that really needs to be balanced.
1: Yeah. And the good thing about it is now that a lot of plant producers in the aquarium industry are starting to lean towards tissue culture, propagation methods. I mean, aquatic plants are not necessarily very hard to propagate sure they're very weedy for the most part i mean there's some slow growing the aeroids are amongst the slowest growing of the, the aquatic plants but even then a lot of them are being tissue cultured in large quantities so i think preserving all this information on all these species is is pretty
0: important and i'm actually starting to delve into a little bit of tissue culturing myself which hmm. is kind of fun What does that entail? Because that's something that does come up in horticulture quite a bit. And and a lot of people aim to get tissue cultured or at least seed started. But a a lot, you know, for instance, carnivores, tissue culture is a big way of getting ethically sourced plants. So what does that entail? So
1: a lot of it entails um, basically getting a little cutting of the plant and starting to produce. What you go through is a, a multiplication phase where you start to get shoot multiplication when you put it into this sterile media. So tissue culture has to be done in sterile conditions aseptic conditions is the most important thing otherwise if you have a contaminated sample most of the time the contamination will eventually outgrow or kill or outcompete mm. the little starting culture and then you start with this media that basically contains all the macro and micronutrients that plants require to grow you'll sometimes add some hormones to get shoot proliferation and then you know once you get enough shoot proliferation you you will change hormones over to something that Maybe it promotes root growth, and then at that point, once the explants get large enough, you know, you can just take them out of culture and then start growing them outside of culture.
0: Wow, that's wild! And thank God, plants are such a modular organism to allow <laughs> that kind of process to work.
1: Yeah, they're quite amazing. I mean, it's amazing what you you could just take a little node from a one of these aquatic plants, stick it in, you know, some tissue culture, and you can multiply it insanely fast compared to You know non-aseptic techniques where you would have to like pot it up and then you need all this other space to grow it out so tissue culture is one of those areas where we as aquascapers enjoy it because well one thing there's no algae in them because they're sterilized Hmm. and and another is that they just seem to respond they grow much faster i mean i've had plants that take off
0: their root systems are amazing you know within a week so that's that's pretty remarkable and another cool thing that I think about in terms of aquatic plants and versatility on that, and, and that kind of thought process is just this idea that not all of them are necessarily fully aquatic plants. Some of them live on the edges of waterfalls or in mudflats and, and, and deal with periodic flooding. But the fact that you can have a plant that does equally as well or does well in air as it does in water just absolutely blows my mind. Because to me, the, the, the machinery at the cellular level would have to be so different
1: oh yeah it's it's quite amazing that they can go back and forth between submersed and immersed growth i mean yeah a majority of these are riparian species uh there's very few i think truly aquatic species i only know of two off the top of my head and they're both bliza bliza species so there's very few true aquatic species out there and most of them are growing at the river's edge so it's i i love to go out collecting myself personally uh we in the u.s we have a you know a good amount of aquatic species that can actually grow in the aquarium it's just finding them and discovering them which is is kind of the fun part
0: yeah i'll never forget the first time i saw a Ludwigia on on a mud flat kind of ambling along you could see where it was in the water and then had come out and had changed sort of its morphology but then flowering that blew my mind i was like what i grew up with you in my aquarium but never knew what you were capable of (laughs) oh yeah
1: it's so much fun and then especially when you can flower plants yourself or just kind of throw them outside and have them do their own thing for a while and then bring them back in and put them in your aquarium some people just keep most of these plants immersed at some form or another because it's easier just to maintain them Hmm. sometimes in the aquariums they grow so fast they're just uncontrollable so it's it's it's, most of them are weedy i would say is is sure yeah.
0: which has unfortunately led to you know rampant invasions uh within a handful of different aquatic species which is why you never release any of your contents of your aquariums back into the wild just yes
1: <laughs> yes do not do that i hope nothing has happened because of the aqu- like none of the aquascapers, but you never know. I think some of the plants we do have are from the aquarium industry, sure. which is kind of sad. Um, right. But, but I mean,
0: like any hobby, there's there's gradations. There's people who are yes. really good at it and people who are not so ethical and, and, and aren't very good about it. But again, there's no reason you can't in a contained environment enjoy these species. And And you mentioned flowers, which is to me. One of the weirdest things is because, again, I was so used to growing these things for foliage. They are amazingly textured, colored, variety of shapes and, and, and styles of leaves. Anything you could possibly imagine is going on under there. But many of them are flowering plants, and they're kind of like whales in that all of their ancestors were terrestrial. So, yes, though you'll get flowers occasionally, but that, in this case... Are there any plants that you know of in the aquarium hobby that actively flower underwater or does most of it revolve around some sort of hydrological cycle where part of them would come out of the water at some point?
1: Um, A lot of what we call the stem plants uh, like Ludwigia or Rotala, they tend to flower out of water emergent, but there are some that actually do flower underwater. A lot of the aeroids actually will put up a spath underwater and Hmm. flower, so I've seen um, Anubius flowering underwater, and Bucephalandra for sure will flower underwater. Cryptocrinies tend not to as much. I've not seen that as often. But a lot of the aeroid species tend to be more open to flowering underwater. I think they're just happy underwater. They just start putting out a
0: flower spike, but uh, who knows? Yeah. I don't know the exact mechanism by which they do it. Sure, and I mean, I'm sure if they're living in some sort of dynamic, seasonally flooded environment, the predictive ability of when that water level is going to drop. I mean, why not? We'll just make a shot at it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And some of this, the
1: mosses actually sporulate underwater sometimes, so you could you'll see a
0: spore packet coming out once in a while.
1: Oh, that's pretty interesting. That's cool,
0: huh? So another thing that is is really stands out to me that you keeps mentioning here is the fact that a lot of these plants really are weedy. You know, they're living in environments where the water can be a disruptive force. They have to be able to grow fast and grow well. if If you are in the hobby and and very serious about it, such as yourself, do you have aquariums as production centers to kind of keep these plants going? or do you have setups outside where you put them outside and then when you want pieces of them to to put into escape, or to use in a competition, then you go and gather what you need and bring it in. I mean, what is what is the care like for someone such as yourself that really does enjoy aquascaping and the process of it?
1: So I'm more on the extreme end. I have multiple, what we call multiple tank syndrome. So I have, <laughs> I think I have right now, I have the moment, uh, one, two, three, four, seven tanks. Nice. Um, yeah, so I always have one tank as kind of a grow tank. And I also keep a lot of plants emergent just kind of in tubs, you know, filled with some soil and just keep them very moist and covered up. And they they do fairly well that way, too. Hmm. But I will order plants whenever I start up a new tank for competition. I'll tend to just order a lot of tissue culture plants um, just because those kind of they go a little longer. They get spread out a little more and they grow a little more quickly sometimes. And they're cleaner. There's less algae on them. So I don't run into as many algae issues in the tank because that's kind of the bane of any planted aquarium is lots of algae yeah so you're you're gonna encounter it at one point (laughs) or another there's uh, so many forms of it that you'll see all different types it's just inevitable you know it's kind of in the air and those spores will eventually land in your water and just take over everything
0: yeah it's it's amazing how suddenly something just appears you know there's no reason for it to be in your house but it's there um, and, and the one thing I always got a kick out of in reading about these, you know, Q and A's with plant growers and experts like that was people would write in about a certain type of allergy and they would say, well, the good news is, is this algae really likes good conditions. So you must be doing something right. The bad news is, is to kill it. You probably have to keep it subpar for your plants.
1: Oh yeah, that's for sure. There's some algaes that are almost impossible to eradicate. There's even some plant species that we consider weedy, which is, uh, yeah, like rickia and utricularia species. There's also some interesting utricularia species, which I forgot to mention. So those are pretty
0: cool. Yeah, I I don't see that. At least again, I'm very limited into the aquascaping world, but it's a, it is really neat to think of, you know, the, the utricularias for all intents and purposes are very often fully aquatic and uh, their floating form can handle some drying in their dormant phase. Are they popular or are they just often too weedy for most people to consider in, in, you know, adding a carnivorous plant to your setup?
1: Most of them are too weedy. There is one utricularia species. Is it, I don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce it, but yeah, sure. there's one species that is very very popular among the hobbyists it, it looks like a grass almost so and it tends to grow as a ground cover which is a very nice it's very low growing and it kind of carpets the whole aquarium hmm. so that's the only it's utricularia graminifolia yeah, yeah. grass like so, leaves. yep that's the only one that i know of that people want there's another one that's extremely weedy called utricularia gibba, which is very hard to get rid of huh
0: well, uh, it was one of those weird things where my nerdy mind would be like, "I need a jar just for that." <laughs> <laughs> Some people might want it. I don't know. They could yeah. be feeding koi or something. You know, it's uh,
1: plants have many, many uses.
0: Indeed. Yeah, that's the other good point is that there's so many reasons to get into this hobby and there really is something for you whatever that reason is and that's also a very exciting thing for people you know it's a weird times we're all stressed in our own way and again if you have something to come home to blow off steam and just kind of get absorbed in it this is a great hobby for that yeah I
1: find it just extremely relaxing to come home and then just kind of plop down in front of my tanks and even the maintenance is. You know, it's kind of Zen and meditative. You just go in and take your scissors and you start
0: pruning plants and you know shaping them. Mm -hmm. It's a very relaxing way to like end the day, I would say. Sure. And I'm guessing, you know, if you're good at culturing or propagating, that just opens up the amount you can trade and interact with other hobbyists and get to know people and, and find new things.
1: Yeah, we definitely it's definitely starting to grow in the US. We have a lot of local clubs. So Chicago has one. Dallas has one. Um, there's also one in Washington, D.C. area, Minnesota. So these clubs are starting to pop up all over the U.S., and it's kind of just a fun place for us to come and meet and trade plants and talk about our tanks and you know, hmm. how to fix certain algae issues or you know just chat away about these aquariums, which is,
0: yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Right on. So as a grower and someone that really enjoys this is there are there like holy grail species? Are there plants that you desperately want to try and haven't been able to get your hands on or just it's they're too difficult at this point or picky? You know, is there a few or maybe one species that really stands out to you as kind of being like the I'll get you someday?
1: Ooh, I would say that the Cryptocorinies seem to have a stronghold on a lot of people. And there are some very rare crypt species out there. I'm not a crip specialist, though, so I always hear my club members, like my friends in the club, talking about certain crypt species, and I don't know what they're saying at all. <laughs> um, so, crips are one of the more popular species of plants, and I would say some of the Amazon swords can get really popular, too, especially some of the slow-growing small species. Um, they're really interesting, and the soft water species. Anything that's difficult seems to attract... You know, people just want to do difficult things, it seems. They want a challenge, you know, so sure. they'll always gravitate towards those harder to grow species. That makes sense. Um, but I also do that. I'm guilty as charged because I, I mean, I bought an RO system just so I could grow certain plants. So that's quite a big, big investment.
0: Just yeah. Just for a couple of plants. But, you know, anyone that's a hobbyist that's listening can empathize on some level. <laughs> we all yeah. have our thing. you know, whether it's you're buying lights, CO2 injectors, RO units, greenhouses, special heating, you know, we can all spend a lot of money on our hobbies if we want to. Yeah.
1: But I would also say anything new to the hobby, there's always new plants showing up and because they're new, they get a lot of attention. So anything that new that shows up a new variety, a new cultivar, you know, there's a couple cultivars of a lot of plants out there now. So there's like white leaf species, which are totally interesting to me because they have almost no chlorophyll. You know, they're still surviving. Hmm. They grow a little slower, but, you know, they can't survive. Those are really popular amongst some people. Um... It's interesting what comes out of the hobby because a lot of these plants aren't always natural variants either. Some of them are actually created, I believe, or they're they're mutations
0: that pop up and somebody's
1: like, oh, this is super interesting. So, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's it's horticulture, but just a very specific form of it. So it's inevitable that once that market starts, it's going to roll. Mm hmm fascinating what about floating aquatics is that something that makes its way into the aquascaping hobby very much or are they generally kind of like are you just going to steal light from the stuff that's going on down below
1: i would say in aquascaping they're not so popular but in planted aquariums people definitely do keep floating plants uh there's a lot of salvinia species there's a couple like frogbit. i don't even know the scientific name for frogbit.
0: you know um, what i don't either now that i think about it
1: but there's frog there's there's a good number of species floating species there's even some ludwigias that are floating i think Celadinoides, something like that so some people do keep some of the floating plants you know if they have like a lower tech lower energy tank you know those floating plants help kind of cut down on the light preventing algae issues to the bottom yeah. i actually used to do that myself just to so i didn't have to deal with algae as much i would just throw in a bunch of floating plants so <laughs> Smart. Because so they just pull their, they just pull the CO two from the atmosphere, and, and there's no issue with them.
0: Ah, so it's a, it's, it's less of the competition aspects, yeah. and huh, clever. And again, things that you would really think about in your day to day life. Again, of course, unless you study aquatic plants, but just being a hobbyist opens up these doors to understanding species in such intimate ways but not even just by themselves and in terms of interactions and going back to kind of what we talked about earlier the amount you can learn from a hobby even just beyond the the joy you get from it is is just remarkable it's such a cool thing oh yeah
1: it's just so gratifying to see this tank change and whenever you show people like beginning to end what (laughs) what the progression of your tank is they're always astounded they're always surprised that the tank can undergo such a transformation. So I, I find that extremely rewarding. I always go back and look at the beginning of my tank. You know, I take pictures and then I look, you know, at the end, I'm like, Whoa, you know, this has really changed. And, you know, that's, that's one of the most enjoyable parts of this hobby.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and one thing that I'm, you know, I struggled with early on was seeing some of these pictures of perfect setups and, and in the moment, these snapshots in time and being like, why can't my tank always look like that? But now that I'm more of a grower, I do appreciate that evolution because it is the dynamic nature of plants to kind of grow, find out where they want to be, maybe move around through rhizomes or stolons or bits and pieces of them. And, and just like you said, watching that process evolve, to me now the dynamic nature of a planted aquarium or jar or just any sort of plant is far more satisfying in the long run Uh, than just that one quick snapshot in time, which is equally as cool, but you have to like wrap your head around the fact that that's not possible 100% of the time.
1: Oh yeah, it definitely takes a lot of practice and intuition and learning the plants. So, you know, you can't just start making those types of aquariums from day one. It just takes years and years of growing these plants and learning how they grow, how fast they grow, how big they'll get and all of that. Just it's it just takes time to learn all of that stuff. And I think a lot of people go through the same process that I did. They start growing plants, you know, and then they start seeing their plants do really well. Then they start, you know, growing different species. And at, at some point, you know, they've done all the species that are available out there. And then they, they kind of maybe move on to aquascaping. I don't know. I don't know if this is the final step, but
0: <laughs> it, it's enjoyable, I will say. And that's the important part. No matter what yeah. it is, there's no maybe end goal. It's just how much are you getting through and enjoying it. but. You know, for, if if we've kind of lit the fire under anyone listening that really wants to kind of dive in and, and give it a shot, um, you know, again, maybe on a limited budget or if not. I mean, what are some considerations to think about in, in going into setting up a tank and, and getting, you know, healthy plants before you even get to kind of the, the extreme end of aquascaping and, and hardscapes and all that stuff?
1: So, I would recommend if you're maybe close to a local club, you know, look for a local club that's available nearby. They're probably going to be the most helpful because there's just so much information there. Otherwise, you know, you could scour the internet. There's a couple good plant forums, and there's a couple of Facebook groups that are actually pretty popular for planted aquariums, and those are extremely good resources to start off with. You can go to the local pet store and also ask them some questions. I will say some pet stores might be better than others. We don't tend to have dedicated plant aquarium stores in the US as much, but the internet is a very good source and so are the local clubs because they're gonna have all the people that know the most information about planted aquariums.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't think of a better way to get a head start in something than to meet club members. I mean, that's my favorite way to learn about plants and, and, and kind of get my head wrapped around the nuances of growing them and what's possible is going to meetings going to events whenever they're putting on a show or something like that. You just meet the most impassioned people. And the best part is, is it's not the same person a hundred percent of the time. You're meeting people from all over the world with different interests, different careers that have all found this hobby to their liking. And they bring something different to the table each time.
1: Oh yeah. And uh, that's kind of, that's the evolution of what's happening right now is these, these clubs are starting to pop up, you know, people who keep fish are also getting into plants. So I think it's starting to grow a lot more in the U.S., which is really good. Worldwide, it's already pretty great. So hmm. I would say, if you want to do it, you know, find a local club. That's the best way to do it because you're supporting, you're meeting people, and also learning at the same time. So it's it's much more enjoyable than being on the internet sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And face to face interaction.
1: Face to face is best, but I learn most of my stuff through the internet. Actually, sure, because. When I was starting up, that's all that was really available. Yeah. There was no local club in my area. So
0: Yeah, that's no, great. I mean, you just gotta know where to look. But again, meeting local people if you can, if that's available to you, is a great head start and and, and learning, you know, what even to look up. But you know, if people want to find out more about your escapes and see them, is there a way to do that online? Do you have a social media presence? It's okay if you don't too.
1: Yeah, I have an Instagram actually. Um it's M
0: M S U I S A N. Awesome. I will put up links to that. I'm going to follow you as well just to see what all cool aquascaping and plants you're looking at. But this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for introducing us to the world of aquascaping. I'm really excited we were finally able to sit down and have this conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, it's been awesome.
0: I love spreading the word. Yeah, direct people your way. And if people have plant questions, you know, uh, this is good. And keep it up, man. From what you showed me when we first met, it's incredible. And, and I think you found a really amazing hobby to be involved with. So thanks for introducing us to it.
1: Yeah, and if anyone has any questions, feel free to like DM me on Instagram.
0: I'm happy to answer any questions. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Have a great evening. Okay, you too. All right, cheers. All right, that was really fun. I really thank Marvin for taking time to talk with us about all of the cool experiences that aquascaping provides, and I hope many of you will give it a shot someday if you haven't already. The great news is, is technology has gotten so affordable in the aquarium world that really nice planted tanks aren't that hard to achieve. You just have to pick the right species for your conditions. As always, go check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast, where you can find all of the relevant links for this conversation, as well as all other conversations. While you're over there, check out all of the great ways you can help keep the show up and running. For instance, you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash Speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Sung, who signed up at the producer credit level. So they are doing the maximum possible to help keep Indefensive plants coming out each and every week. So thank you, Sung. And of course, thank you to all my patrons. I couldn't be doing it without them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Please make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.